Welcome. The peace revolution begins now. Welcome to the Peace Revolution Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Grove, and this is where we step out of the confusion, the fear, and the anxiety of life to relax into some knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. There is a peaceful solution called the Peace Revolution. Now let's take back America. There's a war and we're in. I know we can win it, so let's take back Joining me today, as always, the publisher of Tragedy and Hope magazine, Lisa Arbercheski. The Peace Revolution is where we help each other learn how to think instead of trying to tell each other what to think. It's simple, sustainable, effective solutions. The Peace Revolution is commercial-free and is a public service project of tragedyandhope.com. It's a multivitamin for your mind because you don't know until you've asked the questions. This first episode of the Peace Revolution enlists the critical thinking skills of author Jan Irvin of GnosticMedia.com as well as independent film director Paul Verge of DivergentFilms.com wherein we'll be studying the status quo and how to become immune to corporate advertising. Also, how our education system was subverted as to ensure we're all growing up to be good consumers. The war is over and we want it. Let's remember how we done it so we don't have to do it. Get settled in and relax. You're growing stronger just by listening. Let's start the Peace Revolution. Rich, why don't you start out by telling us the difference between status quo versus our interest as human beings? I would say status quo is what you do without thinking about it. And breaking the status quo involves change. And change involves thought and consideration of what is the status quo and how could it be or what might be a better way. And so the status quo is what has been handed down to us, created by people who were here before we were born into this place. And so basically status quo is the way that our society infringes on our free will insofar as the will that has been enacted around us in the form of a status quo is not necessarily that which we would have chosen on our own. So it's not in our best interest to continue the status quo? Well, I think, no. I, think really, I think really what you're saying is it's in our best interest to question the status quo and to critically think about the status quo that we've inherited, right? And not to just continue also, to pass it down generation after generation. I think it's also important to define in what specific areas is a, a status quo because a status quo can be a, a generalized statement and so that has to be defined and broken down as well within it. Well, I think that the topics of conversation that are rendered taboo, such as religion, economics, politics, and things of that nature, are all rendered so that 
it'll maintain the status quo, and those won't be things that we think about changing, those systems that govern those specific things. But if you look at status quo, it's like there's something that's all common to us, such as food, for instance, and status quo would be two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun, and everyone has that drilled into them because that's part of our status quo that we inherited. We came into a world as kids where McDonald's was this treat. Note, you can have your birthday party there, and you've got Toucan Sam on the Saturday morning cartoons advertising Fruit Loops and all these things that are based around comfort advertising where they take your emotion and they connect it to your mom's pocketbook or your pocketbook, and they get us to transfer our emotions and say, in order to fulfill that emotion, we need to have that product. And that's the mastery behind selling us not only food, but selling our kids just about everything. And that's just going from personal experience and seeing as an adult now coming to realize what is in all that food that we've been consuming all our lives based on those those advertisements that hooked us on emotions when we were kids. So what needs to be done to people to break out of that? I mean, it, it seems to me that we need to approach a system that makes the general population impervious to this type of bombardment of mind control and PR and marketing and because it's all one marketing so you, is PR marketing is mind control and and they're each in the, of the other in a way because they might be more subtle on different levels but each one of them is marketing is trying to get you to go buy something and on different levels so well the question is how do we mature from an adolescent to an adult mentality instead of going from our emotions how do we inject our intellect into these situations and come out with a situation that we're going to have less regret about. Going back to the topic of food, you would note that as you learn about all these things, whether it's from Food Inc. or a movie like King Corn or Ingredients or all these other films educating us about what's in our food and what are we consuming and how are these companies making their profits and at whose cost are they making these profits, right? So you realize corporations might cut corners in order to make profits and that might add up to a deleterious health situation where you have disease. Now you've identified that, and how do you want to move away from being so subservient subconsciously to these advertisements in making our decisions day to day, and how can we break away from empowering those structures with our earnings and our spending habits and our eating habits? I mean, these are the things that I think a lot of people are trying to figure out. Well, do you think people feel kind of overwhelmed by just how much of that kind of conditioning mechanism that they're using to literally brainwash people into buying products they don't need? Do you think they feel kind of helpless because everywhere you look you've got billboards and advertisements and radio advertisements and pop-up ads and bathroom ads and all this stuff wherever you go telling you what to think and what to buy and i think it's overwhelming to people because they're always on a pattern of consumption and the things that they're consuming are not the things that are going to solve their problems or answer their questions and instead of consuming external things bought at stores I think the real human need is the consumption called learning and taking in information and getting answers through understanding and being able to transfer this knowledge and wisdom to our children and empower our friends and families. I think that's the true type of consumption that we're meant for, and that's what strengthens humanity's ability to evolve with its humanity intact. I think this externalized, superficial form of consumption where we feel the need from advertisements, because an advertisement is just there to make you feel insecure with what you already have. It says, what you have is not good enough. Come and buy this product, right? Which is why this podcast has no advertisements, because this is not about that. This is about getting to those answers and understanding why we are all in this situation. There's 300 million people in this country, 30 million, 40 million people in Canada who are all under the same North American advertising regime 
that's carried out tens and tens and tens of thousands of commercials that we've all consumed through. Actually, that extends to South America as well. They watch the same TV and the same commercials as up here, just in Spanish. Okay, so I guess the point would be the problem is now globalized. There's probably 7 billion people being propagandized daily, incessantly through newspapers, billboards, advertising in the street, and advertising television, advertising in radio and whatnot. So we figured this is one place where you can have a a safe, fear-free area where we're not going to try to be scaring you into buying anything. The only thing that we're going to try to put out there is that the whole situation is being caused by a lack of critical thinking and that everything that we do is to get people to understand these things better, give them the tools to learn to critically think for themselves insofar as everyone being informed and being able to make informed choices, which is a form of freedom that we all like to express, that will resolve the situation because what got us into the situation is ignorance. So we need a pattern of learning to get us out of it. And in order so to do that, a- we have to break habits and we have to change. We have to literally change by breaking up the traditions, breaking up the status quo and reevaluating what is really in our best interest as human beings. What we need is a learning and critical thinking mem. Well, just a process really for taking in new information, for discerning, using our ability to creatively and critically think and consider and weigh out the information and then integrate what is useful and discard what is garbage. And it's sort of like an operating system, right? Because whether you believe in evolution or you believe in creationism, human beings have this quantum computer, this brain, if you will. It's just that what we need to do is to utilize an operating system. One that actually works to give us the tools that we need to critically think and take in information. decisions, right. We need to be taught how to learn instead of what to learn. The TV and the news and the newspaper, they've done all the thinking for us, and we just need to listen to what they're telling us. And it's such a childish, simplified version of the world. And I think with today's economic problems, people are more and more realizing how these things are conflict. It's like they're telling you one thing, but they're doing another thing. One hand does one thing, and the other hand does the other. How, how would you better express that? You know what I'm trying to say, man? I'm well, just people have had a lot of faith and belief in the institutions that are supposed to be. But there the to hypocrisy now, us. You know, Obama says one thing, they're really doing another thing. And they're yeah. just telling people what they want to hear. And that's the childish thing. It's like they'll tell the parents what they want to hear in order to go. Do, and they're going to go do what they want to do anyway. Right. Yeah. And so that's what it's about. It's recognizing the childish behavior and saying, look, there are plenty of people who are capable of adult, rational, intellectual thought debate that doesn't escalate into some sort of fear based name calling. There, there are ways to move this forward and structure arguments such that we are getting to answers and seeking solutions as part of that process as opposed to just trying to tear each other down and one person beating the other because it's not about a zero-sum game. It's about taking the information that's in front of all of us and getting these solutions and congealing them and, more importantly, getting people over that hurdle where they're afraid to learn because they think it's some sort of form of work or it's something that they are not equipped to do. I guess my message would be that's an aspect of the system. You've been conditioned through the system to believe that. But in reality, learning is something that you need to get to everything you want in life and all the things that you think you should have had or could have had or whatever, or you're going to have soon. If you're not going through a process of learning, I guarantee the world is not just going to hand it to you. It's not that, you know, that's the secret. The world is not just going to do everything based on your positive thinking. You have to be goal-oriented and structure things in such a way that you can get from point A to point B. And that comes from learning. So what do you guys think keeps people from learning? Well, I think one of the largest aspects is is not being equipped to learn properly in the first place, right? We've we've had this kind of modern education system over the last hundred or so years, which has uh, seems to have gone to great lengths to omit certain things and to uh, include and focus on 
a lot of other subjects that end up being rather irrelevant when you get to the working world. And I think what it does is it keeps people in a state of arrested development because they end up staying more in the reaction of emotions rather than actually critically, intellectually thinking things through. And emotions are these impulses. They definitely guide you and indicate certain things. But when people respond to something, whether it's an advertisement, an accusation, or, or a conversation, and they respond to it only emotionally, their whole thing is to get somebody down to their emotional level instead of being raised so up. So it seems like somebody figured out how to take our emotions, use them against us, and make money from it. That sounds like what advertising is, right? Yeah. And if so, emotions are tied up with fear, and fear is a survival mechanism, they've actually taken our survival mechanism and turned it against us, right? Making it, in fact, our true enemy. So if we understand what goes on in your mind and your body when you experience fear, then I think that can help us get past fear and into the learning because fear is an invitation to learn that process which is alien to you, right? So if you look at fear as a survival mechanism, it's a chain reaction in the brain that starts with a stressful stimulus and ends with the release of chemicals that cause a racing heart, cause you to get all energized, and it's what they call the fight or flight response. And this is where people kind of panic and this literally like cuts off the blood to their brain. And this is why people, when they start to argue emotionally, will become less and less rational. And I think it's important that if we can recognize that and we can just step over that part where our body wants to react and we want to get emotional and say, well, let's just ask a couple logical questions, that will start the process of learning and that will dissipate the fear that keeps everyone in this recurring loop in this hamster wheel where they say, I'm stressed, there are problems, but I don't know how to deal with these things. And what we're offering is a structured way for people to deal with these things and discern reality from illusion, fact from fiction, because that those are the places where our mind spins trying to figure these things out. So this is like a form of traction so we can get out of the rut. Traction. And a lot of people want to be handed the answers instead of shown how to find the answers because coming from that limited education, you kind of have a much more narrow view of the world well, you're trained to look to expert opinions, right? You're trained to look to the experts to tell you. It's like even through the... man this... in the white coat. Exactly. Exactly. The man in the white coat's always your friend. He always knows best. <laughs> and so when we've got these multiple structures set up to give us this preconditioned sense of... You mean the status quo? Yeah, the status that's, quo. That's the guys in the white coat. That is the status quo because they're the experts. They already know. You don't need to look. They've already studied it. They're working in your best interest. Don't worry about who pays them or who's buying the advertising time. Don't even worry that that's an actor. Don't even worry that they can't find a real doctor to say this thing to you, that they have to get an actor and that they tell you it's an actor and you still take it as a real doctor in a white coat because you're used to suspending your reality vis-a-vis television and Hollywood. Yeah, which and those those are excellent providers of an example for the authoritarian structure where we blindly believe in our doctors, our lawyers, our police officers, our teachers, even our parents, right? They What was that what was that study called where they all they had to do was put people in a white coat and tell other people to shock uh, other know, people? Shock the, the people in the other room. What was that study called again? That would be called the Milgram experiment and anyone who's not familiar with the Milgram experiment should google that and watch some videos on it. And familiarize yourself with the human condition and what people, especially in Western culture, have been conditioned to actually not feel about other people because it's a lack of compassion. It's a lack of empathy and is a complete capitulation to badges and authority. And the, the white coat is a perfect metaphor for that in this instance because the doctor would keep saying, 
oh, go ahead, I'll take responsibility. Just go ahead and keep shocking that person. And once the person found that somebody else would take responsibility, they were fine with uh, committing acts of torture. And having this blind faith in authority really allows people to abdicate the responsibility, which is the very model of the corporate structure. So I guess the status quo for someone who's in their mid-30s is that we were born into a world where 40 or 50 years ago, they had perfected psychological control methods of Skinner and Pavlov, and they've added to it with uh, a bunch of other uh, uh, Jose Delgado and the remote control bull and all these other ideas that they've used to control populations through well, advertising. Not only that, but Bernays and... Absolutely, but Bernays and Lippmann, we're talking about people who lived 90 years ago. Status quo has been adversely affected by those ideas for 90 years, basically, before we came into awareness about them. So this is what part of the learning process reveals. This is nothing new. It's just new that we are recognizing this and having the ability to communicate this and share this idea in a conversational form such that other people can likewise realize and take back their freedom. I started reading John Taylor Gatto's book, Dumbing Us Down. The entire title is Strong Words from the New York State Teacher of the Year, Dumbing Us Down, The Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Schooling. Gatto was... I'm, I'm familiar with Gatto. And it's interesting, he writes of the national curriculum of schooling. It's designed exactly as if someone had set out to prevent children from learning how to think and act, to coax them into addiction and dependent behavior. The very stability of our economy is threatened by any form of education that might change the nature of the human product schools now turn out. The economy school children currently expect to live under and serve would not survive a generation of young people trained, for example, to think critically. And what we were talking about in terms of experts, in one of the sections he writes, good people wait for an expert to tell them what to do. It is hardly an exaggeration to say that our entire economy depends upon this lesson being learned. And he's talking about how he builds into, well, not he, but the system builds intellectual dependency into the curriculum and drills that into students over time. Could you give us a summary of the seven things they teach us in schools now? In the past, there were the seven liberal arts that were taught as the trivium and quadrivium, and that was taken out of our school system. We'll discuss that in episode two. What we want to discuss right now is what they actually teach. What are the seven things that they decided to teach in order to make the perfect product, the perfect consumer in our schools as the output, the perfect service worker? These are the things that they've taught all of us across North America, across Western culture, this is what has been socially conditioned into us day and night for 12 years of school. Well, I should preface it by saying he has 26 years experience and he's won awards. And in fact, he won the New York State Teacher of the Year Award. He says teaching means different things in different places, but seven lessons are universally taught from Harlem to Hollywood Hills. They constitute a national curriculum you pay for in more ways than you can imagine. So you might as well know what it is. You are at liberty, of course, to regard these lessons any way you like, but believe me when I say I intend no irony in this presentation. These are the things I teach. These are the things that you pay me to teach. Make of them what you will. And then he goes on to expound upon the seven lessons. The first is confusion. They teach our kids confusion? That's the confusing. <laughs> he says, the first lesson I teach is confusion. Everything I teach is out of context. Even in the best schools, a close examination of curriculum and its sequences turns up a lack of coherence, full of internal contradictions. He goes on to say, think of the great natural sequences, like learning to walk and learning to talk, the progression of light from sunrise to sunset, 
All of the parts are in perfect harmony with each other. Each action justifies itself and illuminates the past and the future. School sequences aren't like that, not inside a single class and not among the total menu of daily classes. He goes on to say, I teach the unrelating of everything and infinite fragmentation, the opposite of cohesion. I teach you how to accept confusion as your destiny. That is the first lesson I teach. The second is class position. The second lesson I teach is class position. I teach that students must stay in the class where they belong. I don't know who decides my kids belong there, but that's not my business. The children are numbered so that if any get away, they can be returned to the right class. <laughs> he goes on to say, if I do my job well, the kids can't even imagine themselves somewhere else because I've shown them how to envy and fear the better classes and how to have contempt for the dumb classes. Under this efficient discipline, the class mostly polices itself into good marching order. That's the real lesson of any rigid competition like school. You come to know your place. The third lesson. The third lesson I teach is indifference. I teach children not to care too much about anything. And he goes on to talk about uh, things like bells. The lesson of bells is that no work is worth finishing, so why care too deeply about anything? Years of bells will condition all but the strongest minds to a world that can no longer offer important work to do. They inoculate each undertaking with indifference. Basically, it conditions us to wait for the bell to ring, to be in this constant state of waiting, waiting for the bell. Mm. And if you think about it in your nine to five job, you're always looking for, you know, looking at the clock, waiting for five o'clock. They portray it in office space or any of these shows. Everyone's always waiting for the bell to ring. Absolutely. It's a form of conditioning. The fourth lesson I teach is emotional dependency by stars and red checks, smiles and frowns, prizes, honors and disgraces. I teach kids to surrender their will to the predestinated chain of command. Rights may be granted or withheld by any authority without appeal because rights do not exist inside a school. Not even the right of free speech as the Supreme Court has ruled. Not unless school authorities say they do. Individuality is a contradiction of class theory, a curse to all systems of classification. He goes on to say how kids are hostages to good behavior. And then the fifth lesson, the fifth lesson I teach is intellectual dependency. Good students wait for a teacher to tell them what to do. We must wait for other people better trained than ourselves to make the meanings of our lives. The expert makes all the important choices. Only I, the teacher, can determine what my kids must study, or rather only the people who pay me can make decisions, which I then enforce. If I'm told that evolution is a fact instead of a theory, I transmit that as ordered, punishing deviants who resist what I have been told to tell them to think. This power to control what children will think lets me separate successful students from failures very easily. Successful children do the thinking I assign them with a minimum of resistance and a decent show of enthusiasm. He goes on to say, curiosity has no important place in my work, only conformity. Fortunately, there are tested procedures to break the will of those who resist. It is more difficult naturally if the kids have respectable parents who come to their aid, but that happens less and less in spite of the bad reputation of schools. No middle-class parents I have ever met actually believe that their kid's school is one of the bad ones. <laughs> that means the system works, right? <laughs> and then, as I said before, good people wait for an expert to tell them what to do. Commercial entertainment of all sorts, including television, would wither as people learned again how to make their own fun. Unless a guaranteed supply of helpless people continued to pour out of our schools each year. Essentially, he's saying, you know, the entire economy would go. 
So they need to create a bunch of suckers. Somehow the health of our economy is tied to the pouring out of helpless suckers from college who are already indentured to a system that they'll never be able to escape because they were never given the tools during that indentured education to think critically and to find the, the answers to their questions. I think that's, that's pretty big. That would make me in an emotional state of fear and anxiety all the time. That would have me putting my emotion over my intellect and making decisions that are reflective of an adolescent. Where we all want to be is that adult mentality where we're putting our intellect and our rationality and our ability to think critically over our emotional responses, over top of our fear. That means in order to break out of the status quo, we might have to go through a little pain or a little fear or a little of both because if you don't go through that shield of pain or that wall of fear, you're, you're going to be in their sweet spot. You're going to be giving them your money. They're going to be using it to make you scared. You're going to be giving them their money to make you, you know, to, it's like a, it's a vicious recurring loop that goes on because we are bought into, as a society, these illusions that the media is there to help us and to help our families get the right information every day. Quite the contrary. They're there to adversely influence you so that the people who are betting against you and tearing apart our society and polluting our world can make more money while they're doing it. And I say, we just don't need to make it so profitable for them. It seems like people could use, in this fog of reality, some sort of compass that could help them cut through the haze and, and start to see the reality of the situation and not be so subservient to the illusions. Jan, where might somebody find some sort of compass in a form of critical thinking? If it's been taken out of our education system to make an advertiser, consumer-friendly society. How might we fashion some sort of compass and give it to people so that they can start to discern their illusion from the reality? In the knowledge of rhetoric and argumentation, people need to understand the basic types of argumentation that are used so that they can literally see right through that type of thing. Now, that sounds that uh, those are arguments. No one likes to have an argument. And rhetoric sounds, that's, that's really far out there. And only recently did I learn and understand and, or learn and come to understand that rhetoric is actually the effective mechanism used by the unelected, non-elected rulers of the planet to govern the rest of us. Why does this word rhetoric seem like noise to all of us? Could it be because somewhere that void, that blind spot of rhetoric, this thing that we've heard of, but we don't really know what it is, could it be that unknown which is controlling all of us inadvertently? The use of persuasive speech in our worst interests? Exactly. Well, as long as we're believing what the politicians, the teachers, the lawyers, the people on TV, Al Gore, Al Gore, anyone who's saying something to us and trying to sell us on something, whether it's a product or an idea, you have to look at what are their motives and intentions and how does this thing truly benefit me and how does this idea or ideology or thing truly benefit the person who's presenting it. And just those areas of due diligence and discernment and critical thinking absolutely change the game because it takes one brain process to accept what you're told and then you know you can go and parrot that to other people without thinking about it because it fits whatever you think but it takes an extra brain process to go okay what is the motive intention of this information what is this person trying to teach me and and actually research it for instance you know you have articles that are spread around the internet claiming this thing or that thing and people are happy to perpetuate that to their mass email lists but rarely do they actually go and look through the article, fact check it, and research. Sure, you get all Who these is people. this author? What else has he written? Right, what are... right. Some, some way of going around and verifying that information. Because you'll have all these different mailing lists, right? 
you'll have people that are concerned about the water, or people concerned about the food, or people concerned about the chemtrails, or people who are concerned about the economy and the energy. There are these hot, meme-like emails that just get sent around to everybody and have this outlandish information. And then the people who think critically, they go and check it out, and they're like, well, this is... This is noise. This is not fact. So I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to kind of discredit or distrust whoever's sending that to me. And then there are other people who blindly believe that. And that whole dynamic ends up breaking things down and dividing people instead of uniting them by way of understanding the complexities or even the simplicities of these advertising dynamics and these different subtle forms of propaganda that are used to kind of get us going in the direction that they want us to go in. What I wanted to do is read the names of the primary 42 types of arguments that PR companies and marketing companies and politicians and things like that use to trick and fool people. I think if we want to engage people and synchronize the audience at this point, then we should cover the, the common ground and the common needs that we all share. And in these individual areas where we're being either put under attack through the pollution of our environment, etc., the idea is that these are all places where we're being commonly adversely affected. And at the same time, we're being propagandized about these things. And at the same time, they all have the same root cause, which is the lack of critical thinking. And that in this episode, we would build out the need for critical thinking and that the fact that it's been taken out of our society and what the hallmarks of all those things are. And then in the second episode, we would provide the audience with the tools of critical thinking and explain each of these things in depth. Like the top five? Absolutely, dude. Pick the top five and I will help you and Paul will help you and Lisa will help explain this to the audience because that is important. If well, we if we attack this strategically and talk about these top five and explain, the point is we can give the example such that people will recognize it. They need to know about red herring, straw man, ad hominem attacks. These are the common ones that are used. Cool. So we've said some interesting things and the audience is going to be like, okay, I'm kind of with you, but I don't see how it applies to me yet. This sounds, mm -hmm. you know, and then once you tie it in, and they're like, wow, you're talking about all the things I'm worried about. These yeah. are all the things that I'm trying to figure out, too, as a father, as a homeowner, as a voter, however people see themselves when mm -hmm. they're listening. And I think listing at least the top five of these fallacious arguments ties in with the education system because the education system teaches us to kind of make those arguments, right? It conditions us to think that those are acceptable, and that's why I have all these people churning out using them. Well, and advertising totally reinforces yeah. their acceptability because it's done all the time, and political ads particularly fallacious arguments are leveled. So, Jan, why don't you give us the top five, in your opinion, fallacious arguments that people might have heard these terms? In my opinion, the top four or five are probably going to be ad hominem, which is attack against the man. And I would also say straw man arguments are another common one, which is basically you set up a, another argument and you debunk that argument and you pretend that it debunks the argument that the other person is presenting. And you guys can help me along with these here. But I also thought red herring is another important one that people should understand. The slippery slope is a common one. But, you know, what do you guys think are a couple others that are important for people to know? Well, it's going to expand on ad hominem, which is really when you decide you can't debate the message, but you decide to just insult the person delivering the message and hope right. that you smear them enough that people don't listen to the message. That's a common response to people who challenge the status quo on the mainstream media. A lot of times they're smeared ad hominem by the host. So that's that's the, a pretty the point being the point being is that you have to use your own discernment. I would say ad hominem arguments are the easiest fallacious argument to make because well, and why would somebody use a fallacious argument like an ad hominem attack? Is that because their argument possibly is weak and they're seeking to fool an audience? That's the primary modus operandi. Interesting. So when you identify that, you found somebody who's trying to fool you. That's interesting. 
And so the cure for that fallacious argument would be to call it out, first of all, then also to examine the motives and intentions of the person who's making the ad hominem attack. That should also give you immediately the incentive to go and find out what the person is arguing who is being attacked. This person wants to lie about what the other person is saying and cover up what they're saying. So the immediate result of that should be, let's go find out what that person is saying, whether we read their book or whether we contact them directly or whatever the case may be. Hmm. Right. You consider the source, but you also use your own discernment when it comes to the information. So when you find a fallacious attack, when you identify a fallacy, you found a beginning point, not an end point. You now have more interest to find out more. It's not something that gives you closure. And recognizing that fallacious arguments are designed to appeal to the emotions to create a slide past your intellect is, uh, I think, one of the primary things to identify. What's next on the fallacy list? Let's talk about straw man arguments. That's one of the favorites they use out there. I hear lots of people on the news using straw man arguments. They actually create a fake argument that appears to look like the original argument, but it's not. And then they debunk that argument and then pretend to have debunked your argument as well. Exactly. That's really useful for people who don't like to address the facts directly. (laughs) Well, I think a really good straw man argument is the environmental movement. I think a lot of people tie together the, you know, they say that it's a polarizing choice. You're either pro-environment or you're part of the oil lobby and you don't think that there's any global warming or any problem happening. You're either for killing polar bears or hugging trees. Yeah. And it's not that simple. There's a lot of middle ground where people recognize that corporations are polluting. They are the major polluters. And that recognizing that they have situated themselves to infiltrate the environmental movement so that they stand to profit from the solution. So it's actually a Hegelian dialectic. Well, they convince consumers that they're the problem. So it's it's you driving your car for 28 minutes a day. Yeah, there's, that's a good example of a straw man argument. Okay, here we go. I think it was you guys who mentioned the other day to me that the 50 largest ships on the oceans consume as much well, They produce oil. as much. Yeah, the 50 largest commercial transportation vehicles output more carbon than all the cars in the world combined. These commercial vehicles, oil tankers and what have you, are operating 24 hours a day, taking stuff back and forth, back and forth. They want to transfer the damage they're doing in order to make higher profits to the everyday consumer. And those of us who recognize that, like organic consumers and other consumer groups out there, have the Why? Well, that's why I brought up the environmental thing, because yeah. I thought that tied in, like having the, bring up the, the classic straw man argument of Al Gore, which is, you know, there's a lot of people who think the moon landings were faked as well. Uh, And so he associates anyone denying that global warming is man-made by associating with some kind of denial movement. And that's a straw man argument. He's he's saying this one's already been defeated, and the people who argue this are arguing essentially the same as the people who argue this debunked argument. Yeah, he'll also bring up that the world is flat. He's like, they're like the people who still believe the world is flat. Yeah, that's that's a great example, Paul. That's a really good one. What's the next fallacy? Why don't we talk about red herrings? Well, according to the definition that I had researched in my studies, the red herring was a trick that was used to mislead hounds on the fox hunt. And so some sly devil would take a red herring, which is a smoked fish, and they would drag it across the trail so that the dogs would follow the smell of the food instead of the smell of the fox. Okay? Now, I don't know why they wouldn't want the dogs to catch the fox, because the whole point of the fox hunt, I thought, was to catch the fox. So I'm not really sure I buy into the official historical version of that definition. However, 
to my understanding of use and propaganda, a red herring is something that's put there to take you off the trail and to send you in another direction. And there might be a reason they don't even give you the real definition of red herring is because the idea itself, if you understand what it is, is very revealing because the whole purpose of the red herring in our society and the fact that everyone kind of knows this word and doesn't know what it means, it's indicative of the fact that we're all being misled continuously so by... the definition of red herring is a red herring in and of itself. Absolutely, because it's a technique that's used to take you off the trail and make you think that it's like false news, false propaganda, psychological warfare, all the things that are used to create and, and control public opinion. That's what advertising and these, these big marketing companies on Madison Avenue, that's what they do. They know how our minds, how our habits are formed better than we do. And they've been manipulating them ad nauseum, you know, continuously through our whole lives as part of the status quo. What's after red herring? Why don't we go for a biased sample, which is basically uh, a fallacy committed when a person draws a conclusion about a population based on a sample that is biased or prejudiced in some manner. If you go to a group of ranchers and you ask them about whether or not they like to eat meat, and then you say that that sample is indicative of California or someplace else where there's a lot of vegans. Right, right? exactly. So. so is it sort of like all of these polls that they're throwing at us all the time? I mean, it's my personal belief that they just put out whatever yeah, numbers they, they want. they go into a rich white but... neighborhood, they ask some questions that tell exactly. them the answers they want to hear, and then they tell us that's representative of all the people in America. That's like one of the things that you hear every day on the news and in the newspapers and stuff is statistics show or the latest studies show. And that's one of the things that they just do on a regular daily basis is this biased polls and stuff. And then they manipulate the data so that they can, oh, you know, well, you know, people don't want to be in the group that's not in in, in the know. Yeah, they want to be in the, they want to so. be in the hippest group. So a poll is actually uh, a mechanism to inform you how to act according to how you think of yourself so it's isn't not, that something that came out of tavistock absolutely these these are these are control pieces that have made their way into our daily society and our daily status quo if you will and uh, we take them as oh they're telling us what other people think no they're telling you what to think instead of how to think and that is like a suppression of consciousness that's not cool actually goes right into the next one that i was going to bring up which is the bandwagon fallacy and that is a fallacy in which a threat of reje rejection by one's peers or peer pressure is substituted for evidence in an agreement. This line of everyone's reasoning. doing it, and if you don't do it, you're not cool, dude. You're not right. Cool. You're not exactly. Yep, you are square. Everybody knows there's a consensus on global warming. Everyone knows. Everyone knows because Al Gore told everybody, and he got a lot of favorable press. He got a Nobel Prize, right? That's right. You know, and an Oscar. And unlike Obama, who got his on credit. Right, because he hasn't done those actions to deserve it. They're like, we're giving this to you for future actions. But well, um, you know, it, well, excuse me, but a million people can't be wrong. Al Gore did not invent the internet, but he did make up global warming. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that you know that should really give people a, a good idea of a lot of you know exactly how these fallacy arguments work and stuff and there's you know there's a lot more of them that we'll, we can go into uh, at another well, I time think the, but. i think the, the the how it's empowering to people is because you're taking you know what we're doing is we're taking our fears we're analyzing them and we're learning to laugh at them because we we discovered that they are systems of control and that once we overcome our fear and actually look at what's going on it's empowering and that's exactly what the people trying to put us in fear don't want us to do they are scared of us overcoming our fears they're scared of us taking a look at water privatization and actually realizing it for what it is. 
right? They're scared of us looking at Monsanto and the revolving doors with Tom Vilsack and, you know, in Obama's uh, cabinet, et cetera. Uh, all these different things coming to bear that are basically corporatizing humanity. And when the corporate agenda is in direct conflict with the human needs for survival, you're going to get what you have right here. People trying to figure out what's going on, what has been going on, where are we now, and where do we need to go, and how do we get from A to B? Because that's what this is all about, trying to discern these different areas of common structure that are under attack, and we're all trying to deal with them individually, and we're trying to deal with each topic individually. It, they basically fragment it so that you can't deal with any of them effectively, which is why we need to you know, have a group come together and say we all recognize that in these different areas, corporations are trying to adversely affect our freedom and our ability to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. And we need to act as if. But first, I think we need to get on some, the same page with some of these subjects. And if you don't think that transnational corporations have a controlling interest in your best interest, right, in, or in your destiny, then just consider the largest economies on the planet, Right? Aren't some of the largest economies on the planet actually transnational corporations? Absolutely. Absolutely. Transnational corporations outnumber many, 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 many countries in their gross national product, etc. Whatever financial indicator you'd use for the size. Revenues. So in a sense, the compass that you're seeking is to be able to see through the rhetoric by analyzing and identifying and rejecting the fallacious arguments that are a heavy part of the rhetoric that allow the deception to occur in the first place. Because the thinking is if you could get through the rhetoric, which is just seeing through the persuasive speech, which is just seeing through the propaganda or the proverbial bullshit, right? It teaches you to discern fact from fiction. I think that any culture that has existed through history that has lost the ability to discern fact from fiction was gone within 10 or 15 years of that provably coming to bear and someone using that against them. There's no evidence in history of a culture that's lost its ability to distinguish fact from fiction not getting taken over. They always get taken over by some other group that is thinking critically and taking advantage of them because that's the story of, that's the circle of life. It's people with more information using it against people with less information. And unless people like ourselves start to step up and apply our own intellect and start to share the information and empower other people likewise, such that they can communicate with their friends and family, then, you know, unless we do that, there is no hope. But in doing that, we are the solution in action right now. So let's talk about water. What is the public perception of water? We grew up with water. Turn on the tap. It's just there. It's, it's pretty much free. It's everywhere. You could be locked out of your house and still get a drink of water when I was a kid, right? I don't know if it's still like that now. Would you drink out of someone's hose today? <laughs> the perception is that you shouldn't, right? The perception is, is that it's bottled water is somehow better for you. Oh, bottled different. water. The perfect product. The perfect product. What is Evian backwards? Naive. So, water is being privatized. They're selling us bottled water that's actually coming from a tap, right? In most cases, it's not filtered, it's not pure, it's not spring water. It's just tap water they're bottling and using fancy marketing to get you to buy it, right? Fiji water is ruining the aquifers in, in Fiji, right? And so all the indigenous people, they can't get water to drink, but we think we're so cool here in the States walking around with our Fiji water bottles. I mean... That is like, if there's blasphemy in the world, that is blasphemy. Knowing and still participating in that fraud. 
So we're at the point where these companies are privatizing water to the point that the indigenous peoples in those countries cannot feed their families, cannot get drinks, cannot give babies water. They're drinking out of streams that, you know, and getting all, all sorts of crazy diseases because they can't afford to buy the water that has now been privatized by some international corporation. But those same corporations can grow things like roses and then, and, you know, in, in South Africa and, export and then them, export right. them to Europe. Right. And then, you know, you're markets. out and you're going out to dinner and then this, the, the woman with the roses comes along and like, oh, would you like to buy a rose for your girl? They do it in like all the cities and all the nightclubs and stuff like that. Right. That is like the end user. When people are participating in that, you're like enabling that whole process. Right. So the idea is that by watching a film like Blue Gold or reading the book that it's based on called Blue Gold. Uh, you can educate yourself in this area and start to see that Enron, when it crashed, it was in the midst of privatizing the world's water. And they didn't stop that plan just because their their favorite toy got taken away and get, they got caught with Enron. They continued to do that with all these other transnational, international companies. However you want to talk about these sociopathic uh, entities that are ruling our planet at this point. And not only that, but I think uh, one major factor about water that most people aren't aware of unless they've kind of been looking into it, is is the addition of fluoride to the water supply and just what effect that has in uh, aiding in the dumbing down process. Well, it's good for kids' teeth, right? There's no other history to the use of fluoride on prisoners or war camps or Nazis or anything like that, right? It's just for the kids' teeth. It's all about they care so much about our children's teeth that they want to put fluoride in the water. That has to be the entirety of it, right? There can't be another reason. Right. And what is fluoride in the first place? Because I didn't even know that it was a byproduct of the aluminum industry until I think I was probably 30 before I understood that. So can you ex uh, further expound on that? What do you mean? It's aluminum byproduct. Like they're taking stuff out of a mill, processing it and putting it into like toothpaste in the water supply. I know the Nazis use fluoride to dumb down and to mentally incapacitate their prisoners of war. And that there's several dentists on record doesn't, recommending doesn't, against doesn't prozac and stuff like that have a lot of fluoride in it that's actually true one of the active ingredients in many antidepressants is some form of fluoride some modification of fluoride which is a known suppressant of both emotions and well, i thought and, it was a neurotoxin absolutely wow that sounds bad why would you want it in your toothpaste or especially to expose our kids to it because of the guy in the white lab coat is marketing it to you and it's included in products as if it's a feature as if it's an additional thing that's protecting you and it's marketed in that way people will buy poison if it's marketed effectively coca-cola that's crazy dude so that brings us into food you don't think they'd market prozac poison? is a fluorinated drug called fluzextine mm, sounds delicious and then uh, paxil is another fluoride drug called Perozetine. Interesting. Yeah, so these are all fluoride drugs. Yeah, to sum that up, I, I would say that the fluoridation of our water supply is marketed to us as, as a benefit, and it's really some corporation offloading its toxic waste. Alcoa, Aluminum Corporation of America. I think they had uh, worked up some deal back in the 50s to start doing that. It's a clever way to get rid of their toxic waste. We'll donate it to the water system. Yeah, just Google fluoride po poisoning <laughs> and then go talk to your local dentist. All right, so what, what are people supposed to be aware of? You know, food, the public perception is food is healthy. You need food. You go out and get food every day. Anybody that's a corporation that's selling you food has to be selling you something healthy. Surely there's an FDA that's there to protect you and make sure that food and the drugs that you're getting in your daily routine from your doctors and from your supermarkets, that these things are all certified, right? Food, food and Drug Administration, they're watching out for you. 
So could it be possible that somehow out of one of the 14,000 artificial food-like substances that is sold in a grocery store that any of that could be poisonous for you? They wouldn't poison us for profit, would they? I think they wouldn't put poisons that will act quickly on you, but that it's very profitable to put things that will accumulate in slow fashion like aspartame, high fructose corn syrup, you know, and other substances that you can produce really cheaply that have a large effect on taste. And if it if it adds up to a lot of poison over 20 years, like that's not our problem. Something like MSG that enhances the flavor or even the things that they, the preservatives and the things that they put into food to, you know, to have a longer shelf life and, and this sort of thing. And not only that, but some of these are neuro and excitotoxins, which create, a, a, well, they chemically manipulate your brain so that you actually crave those foods. So you actually can become addicted to certain types of foods just like they're a drug because it's literally drugs that are put into the foods to do that exact thing. Just like McDonald's says with uh, all the sugar and things. Yeah, and, and if you watch the movie King Corn, you actually learn quite a lot about the whole corn supply and food yeah. ink as well. Yeah, most of what well, McDonald's... Well, not sugar, I should say corn syrup, right? Well, most of... You know, what's surprising is like a McDonald's hamburger is made out of like 56% corn. When you get into the statistics, because what you're doing is they're growing corn for for fuel, for ethanol, then they're taking that waste, they're feeding it to cows, and they get the cows super fat, super fast in such a way that if they didn't slaughter them at that time, they would die like a week or two later. So they get this this cow that's so unhealthy, it's about to die, and then they slaughter it. Then they mix that like 14,000 of those cows together that aren't really cleaned very well, and they put those together to make burgers that go all over the place. Like 97% of the burgers that are out there come from these cows that are eating this crap corn that are going through this process that everything else in the food chain at McDonald's is also based on corn, corn-like substances, the derivatives of excess old corn or waste corn, or corn derivatives that are going into all these other products. And basically, French fries have more corn than potato in them. So, but then what are cows supposed to be eating? Uh, grass. Cows are supposed to eat grass, but they don't. it's not profitable enough for those mega corporations to make it work. And their whole automated structure where they have to have cows a certain size at a certain rate and all this other stuff. So they force feed them and they keep everything closed, locked up together. So is there, has there ever been any mad cow disease in a cow that eats grass? Who would tell you? Because the media companies that are there you think to report and protect you are only there to take out competition and to slur certain companies and censor and suppress information that might otherwise adversely affect other companies. So if somebody comes out and appears to be not pro-meat, say, someone who's a public figure like Oprah, would that... Yeah, well, look at the reporters from Fox News in Florida that were doing the uh, report on the bovine growth hormone in the milk, and they discovered all this poison, and it's going out to these school kids and whatnot, these adverse effects. Then they want to report it, and they actually have an investigative news show on Fox, and the Fox legal department says, there's no way that you're going to print that because we'll lose our Monsanto ads. And that, I think, was the first thing that brought to, you know, people who watched the film The Corporation or any of the other outboxed yeah. was probably the first place that showed up. But the point would be, like, once once that alarm bell went off and you understand that there are lawyers out there preventing information from getting to you and that could be adversely affecting your health, that's when I had to wake up calls like I have to start looking for myself and figuring this stuff out because I can't depend on those media outlets to do it for me. So we need to find other people who are looking to do likewise and, and ally with them, uh, strategic alliances or you know, some sort of formation of groups or communication mechanisms where we can share this information and get other people to the same level and we can learn from each other. Safety through awareness. 
if you can't trust the media, you basically have to become it. And if you can't trust the food, you basically have to grow it yourself. And that's why you see this rise in organic food co-ops and all these other positive steps that are coming forward because the corporations aren't offering these solutions. And I think it's our job as people who recognize this to find other people who potentially, you know, they kind of get it and get them to the level where they do get it because at this point there's no use in being shy and waiting for someone else to come along and do this for us because we already understand the system well enough to know that it survives by preventing us from doing that which we're doing right now, which is sharing this information in such a way that people could understand that A, there's a problem with the food and the water and the energy and the economy and all these different things, and that the common root cause to all of this is that they took away our ability as a, as a people, as a society, to think critically. They gave us an education system that purposely took that out and conditioned us into advertising-believing consumers, right, to purchase with our emotions and not based on a logical, do I need this right now? We purchase, oh, it's on sale. It's for me. You know, it helps my image. My friends are going to think I'm cool. And, you know, we are all subject to this. And I would I would like to meet someone who's not subject to any of those influences because they basically would have had to spend their life on the moon and come back and be like, hey, what's going on? Because you can't be born into this society. Even if your parents don't have a TV and they don't watch TV at home or whatever and don't get the newspaper, you're still hanging out with people all the time. And, to, you know, to get the joke at school or to be in at the water cooler at work, you got to know certain things and, and because that's what the lowest common denominator of our culture has come to these days. Acceptance by what you buy instead of what you know or who you are or how you act certainly helps move products off the shelves. Well, you say it's interesting you said you know you can't trust media and you can't trust these corporations. There's a reason why, right? The reason why is because they are mandated by law to profit regardless of your suffering, regardless of the environment suffering. I think it's important for people to understand why they can't trust these corporations because these tr corporations literally cannot make a decision that affects their profit, even if it's the best thing that they should be doing for you. It's better for them to dump their toxic byproducts into the local rivers and streams and all into your soil, etc., and just pay some type of fine later because it's profitable for their bottom line, right? And so corporations like DuPont, for example, mm -hmm. will continue to dump dioxins into the Mississippi River. I think it was DuPont who was doing Them that. Them Dow. Dow. One, one of the these above. corporations. All the above. You know? Yeah. And, yeah, and they Walmart do it because it's Walmart got busted for dumping into the rivers. Absolutely. And they do it because it's profitable. And so if you can't see beyond that, and if you don't understand that in the first place, then you know, you're trusting these corporations. And if we look at the status quo of today, people are trusting corporations, essentially because the corporations are controlling our government. If you look at the revolving doors and everything that's going on between corporations, transnational corporations, and our own government, you look at the educational system, you look at our food, our water, everything, our environment, we're trusting these corporations, we're trusting our children's future to these corporations, and they don't have our best interest in mind. Well, corporations have no body to prosecute, no soul to save, they have no conscience, they act as sociopaths because they have no no regard for their actions or the effects adversely to the environment or the human population. And so we're trusting sociopaths and psychopathic corporations for our news, for our food, for our children's educations, because most of the universities and educational systems have been taken over and privatized. And so when the education system's out of whack, that's a problem. When the media, the fourth estate, is no longer working in the interest of its audience, that's a problem. 
when you have this systematic secrecy that enables all of these other frauds to be perpetrated, covered up, continued. You know, there have been trillions of dollars mismanaged in our government in the past couple of years, and we keep looking to Keith Olbermann or John Stewart or Spill O'Reilly to fix these things. And the reason we're here doing this is because we finally realized they're running everybody in circles. They're not giving you the tools to understand, to discern, to think critically. They're not giving you the tools you need to sidestep the fear and anxiety and replace that with a process of continuous learning and observation and awareness and contemplation and conversation with other people and all the things that we need to regain the notion of civic responsibility in our society. So would you say they've kind of put us in a box and to think outside that box is to go to the... Well, I'd say that, you know, the tipping point or the turning point is the part where we realize that to do the same thing every day and expect a different result is insane, according to Einstein, right? And Einstein also said that if we have problems, we're not going to solve those problems at the same level of awareness that created it, right? So really the tipping point is is our realization that if the problems are being caused by the suppression of information, then the solutions arrive when the information is no longer being suppressed. And that's what we're doing within the Peace Revolution podcast. That's what we're trying to share with people and give them the, uh, the idea that there is hope out there. And the hope depends on how willing are you to do a little bit of learning. Because I think the expression of art triumph over the suppression of greed and that if you want to exit the rabbit hole, if you want to exit the confusion and end up with a position where you have some sort of certainty, then, you know, let's go this way. Let's let's keep going in this direction and figure out what we need to discern our way out of these situations and to communicate with others. What if I'm too busy fighting against the environment? Why do you think you're too busy fighting against the environment? Because people have taken our common needs and divided them up into little different groups. Oh, you're going to go support the environment, but it only, not... it only appears sec. Well, absolutely, because they're all based on suppression of a couple common facts that could improve all of these things, right? As far as the environment goes, environment, yes, there's too much pollution going on in the world, and it's being done predominantly by multinational corporations. And those multinational corporations got to be as big and powerful and strong as they are today by the artificial prohibition of God's greatest gift to this planet in the plant kingdom, hemp, which would allow us to solve our food problems, our energy problems. Any problems of clothing around the world are certainly solved with hemp. It's a building material. You can solve all the major problems. The energy problem goes away. We, there is no more use for hydrocarbon petrochemicals as a fuel, nor is there a reason to use them in the production of water bottles and plastic and things like this, right? You could have all the water bottles and they could be biodegradable, right? Hemp makes plastic. Hemp makes cement. Hemp makes the most protein, you know, out of each seed of any plant on the planet. It's been used for ten thousand years. I don't need to pitch you on this, Jan. Help, help me out here. <laughs> Paper, plastic, food, fiber, medicine. Well, and and talk about the benefits to the well, and what about the benefits to the environment? Right in terms of soil reclamation. Phytoremediation. They used hemp to clean up the radioactive soil around Chernobyl. So hemp has the ability. Russians did. Right. So we, we can plant hemp all over the country in places where corporations, where we have brownfields and these different corporate trash sites that have to be cleaned up. You could grow hemp in those areas and make that area livable again, where it's no longer poisoning our water. But we have to get over this fear of reefer madness and that hemp is attached to marijuana and they, those are both bad. And you've been told by the Hearst Company and these big media companies and your propagandizing education system that the solution that we all need to recognize is bad for us. And it's the fear of being able to get past that. It's the fear that's preventing people from realizing all of this history. Right, dude. It's, that, it's the emotional attachment to that that is crashing this country right now. And either we break free of that emotion and start going with our intellect 
or the or get used to the idea of America as a past history thing because it's no longer going to be there. America, uh, the dream that I grew up with, depends on critical thinking and people taking responsible action, which is what we're trying to do here. But it wouldn't have been yeah, done. Nice. And and actually going back uh, to what we were discussing about earlier under the uh, different types of arguments, the two of them that are right next to each other are appeal to emotion and appeal to fear. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, dude. And as long as they appeal to their your emotions successfully, and as long as that you will fear something of, in their system that is not in your best interest, well, you know, there it is. There it is. You need to identify mm -hmm. what your priorities are and what your best interests are. And I will guarantee that you, to get there, you have to go through some fear or some pain because it's not where the society, the status quo has purposely put you at this point to realize this. Everybody who's realizing right now is in the middle of that status quo. They're in the middle of, you know, they're going to need to go through a little fear, a little pain, a little uncomfortableness, whatever, to get outside of that, and then they can live free. But until they decide to take those steps, they're always going to be at least an unwitting victim, and now they'll be a witting victim because they know that there's freedom out there, but they want to continue a slave-like position where they don't see freedom as a potential. But Al Gore told me that if I pay a carbon tax that it'll save the environment. Al Gore stands to financially benefit from that statement. So actually, what's the fallacy name for that, Jan? Where somebody presents a position that they're going to benefit from, and that's the only reason he's presenting that untruthful position, which is the un that's the inconvenient truth of the whole thing. I don't have my list of fallacies in front of me. Well, he, he's, he's definitely using one called affirming the consequent, which is saying uh, because condition A and B exist, then condition C must be true. Actually, he uses several fallacious arguments like saying that there's uh, an overwhelming consensus, and as soon as anybody challenges that statement, which he doesn't prove with, you know, consensus is kind of like one of those emotional buzzwords. Yeah, so he, he I guess you could say he mixes his fallacious arguments and almost creates new classifications of, of combinations of fallacies. But it's, it's hard with Al Gore's work to actually find a real non-fallacious argument. I've studied global warming enough and seen John Coleman's work uh, along with Lord well, Christopher Monckton. Alluding to the global warming and mm -hmm. like how it's, a, how it's a fraud. So, Oh, I was mentioning how, yeah, algorithms. If, if I had to explain to somebody why I thought global warming as they advertise it on TV wasn't as they advertise it on TV, I would point out a video on YouTube, which is um, a, uh, an interview with the founder of the Weather Channel, Dr. John Coleman who, with a group of about 10,000 other scientists, has been suing Al Gore and, and challenging him to a debate, which Gore keeps ducking. And then there's Lord Christopher Monckton. There's any number of climate gate uh, releases or articles that demonstrate that the information that they were presenting us was knowingly and fraudulently presented in order to amplify a position for carbon trading such that Gore could financially profit from that with his blood and gore carbon trading firm. But a lot of times the fallacious argument is made... You know, whether it's guilt by association or the straw man argument that there's only two sides, basically. You're either with Al Gore and you believe there's man-made global warming or you're what they call a climate change denier where you believe nothing's happening. You know, so they negate the position of recognizing that all these corporations are polluting, that this change does need to happen, but not in the form of a carbon tax that's put on all the people in the world. Well, what you're describing is a you know, practical application of the Hegelian dialectic because they erase the position of moderation and leave you with two extremes, two polarities, either of which, if you side with either of those polarities, you are playing into their game because it's a shell game where they hide this middle column of the middle path, uh, moderate path, or however you want to see it. They leave you with these two extreme poles on the outside, 
And I'm sure we'll learn in future episodes what, what that all symbolizes mm-hmm. and how they do that and what that's all about. But the point is, by choosing either of the polarities, you've already chosen a position that empowers them at the cost of your own freedom because you don't know enough to ask for that third option. Or in, in the case of the elections, they, they now give us that third option so that we won't go looking for it. And that third option always leaves us with one of the other first two options, mm-hmm. right? So that and the rigged electronic voting. But I digress. Well, it's interesting that Al Gore has never once mentioned the word hemp. And I fail to see how paying a carbon tax, how money flowing in, in the direction of these corporations, right? Isn't well, this like it's, 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 a it's Wall going Street to, scheme? It's going to the, what, the BIC, the IMF, and uh, the United Nations. They're the ones that, you know, getting the money. So it's basically going to the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds. Well, and they have such an excellent record of taking countries out of despotism, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's you know, their total plan is to help those countries and not subvert them financially through debt slavery. Oh. And nobody, you know, nobody questions, hey, you know, let's... Look at the history of all of these people and these companies involved that are well, doing these things. Who Let's would? Because the media is controlled, right? Right. And 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 see what they've been doing, and it would be so obvious that that everyone involved in this whole program is, you know. But but that would be that would require people to take that second step and do their own research and and look into things and fact check them. Well, and it's like this: it's like global warming exists. It is there. The Club of Rome, the United Nations, Al Gore, all his scientists, they will all tell you that it exists and they will scare you with it as long as you think that the solution is carbon credits. Now, as soon as you try to really solve that problem and say, hey, why don't we just unprohibit hemp? Hemp can take care of this whole problem. It produces oxygen. It can grow anywhere. It can grow everywhere. It's, it's going to require the same amount of carbon dioxide back from the air and from the environment that it takes to, you know, that it right. takes so to grow. Right, so then it solves Al Gore's big panic problem, but it doesn't solve it in the way that he wants you to solve it. So then it's going to go away, and they're going to say, oh, it's not really a problem. the money back to the farmers and the local communities and everything, and the money's not going upward to... So again, it's the emotional over the intellectual. Our leaders are people who use their emotion, and they say they want something. So they're going to make up this intellectual stuff so that they think that we will give them what they want. But at the end of the day, if we really look at that and think critically... What we could give them as a solution to global warming is exactly opposite of what they want, and I think that'd be a good lesson to teach them. Well, and it's interesting. Al Gore tells you, for example, to plant a tree, right? And if you start talking about hemp, you wouldn't have to cut trees down, right? You don't need to cut another tree down. So he wants you to go plant a tree as a solution, and yet, you know, you don't need to plant a tree. We don't need to cut any more trees down. We could just stop cutting trees down and start using hemp. It is so... Idiotic to have to wipe up spills with a paper product that's made from trees when we could be using hemp. It is idiotic to use toilet paper and no like facial tissues, all these things that are made out of wood pulp trees. It's idiotic to use wood pulp trees to make our printer paper when all of these things could be made out of hemp. And traditionally, until the last 80 years, they were made out of hemp. And the papers lasted longer. If you buy books today, in 10 years, those pages are foxing and falling apart. I have books that are made out of hemp paper, and those are, you know, they can last hundreds of years. The Bible, the Gutenberg Bibles, all those old Bibles are printed on hemp paper. Drafts of the Declaration of Independence were printed on hemp paper. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a Webster's Dictionary from the 1840s that's printed on hemp paper, and it's in great condition. And there's an agenda in play that is not being announced through the media, and it's kind of our job to make that that agenda known and to cite the sources. So I think. The green agenda is something that we should share with our audience. 
There's a there's a book from 1991 published by the Club of Rome, uh, which you can look into them on Google, and it was called the First Global Revolution. Let's read a little excerpt about environmentalism. It says, "Quote: The common enemy of humanity is man. In searching for a new enemy to unite us, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like would fit the bill. All these dangers are caused by human intervention." And it is only through changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome. The real enemy then becomes humanity itself. So what they did was they're trying to figure out, you know, Club of Rome is an intellectual think tank that has nothing to do with the Catholic religion. It's very much like NATO or, you know, any of these other supranational organizations like the Council on Foreign Relations, Trilateral or Bilderberg. And basically what they're trying to do is figure out how to control everyone on the planet. And they said the most effective way would be to put them in a situation where we have artificially polluted this whole planet into a point over 30 or 40 years where they think it's going to go on like this forever, and we all panic and cede our allegiance to a, a, a one-world government, which is what the United Nations was set up to start. So, Which brings us to the money issue and the economy. Yeah, I think, I think the environment and the economy are tied more together than people realize, because if if people are unfamiliar with the the whole currency system and the bankster agenda, then you know they can definitely find a, a treasure trove of information. Lots of films from the Money Masters to you know uh, Money is Debt. There's a lot of information out there. But if you do do that research, you'll notice that the the kind of final agenda for these bankers who've controlled our money supply for so long is to unite the the world into a, a ruling government, sort of like how we have with the UN, but to actually rule that government through uh, a unified currency for the entire world. And something like the euro comes along. People thought that wasn't a possibility back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And these working groups from the Bilderbergs onwards have been planning to have that happen, and it's come into fruition. So when it comes to pushing a, a global monetary policy, I can see the environmental movement kind of coalescing and then pushing this whole carbon credit thing into some form of currency, right? Right. So, it's 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 a possibility people haven't really necessarily recognized. Well, let's just step into that for a second. I saw this guy named uh, David de Rothschild, and he was out there, and I guess he was speaking at Google. I think maybe in France. Anyway, he's speaking at Google, and he's giving this whole speech about how he's going to you know sail on this plastic boat out to the plastic island in the Pacific, and he's you know one of the big guys behind the environmental movement, and he was behind that big concert that was supposed to save the Earth a couple years ago. Yeah, was live it but the point is, David the Rothschild is out there behind all these movements going rah-rah. And then when you look at where he comes from, like, you know, who, what's his family? Why is he so interested in the environment? You find out he comes from a family that helped to make up this whole environmental green movement over the past 30 years. And so they have, you know, the sons, literally the sons of international banksters that are leading the green movement. And so when you see Google... And leading, NBC, the, and leading the global destruction at the same time. Well, look, when you see NBC with the green peacock on there, you should add that to the fact that NBC makes nuclear weapons and all sorts of profits from war. General right? Electric. Right? So Al Gore's going to... things to life. Right. So why are these international corporations, the ones telling us that we need to be green, they're offsetting their own burden. They're externalizing their true costs and responsibilities to us and getting us to do the work for free. And to pay for it. Those new light bulbs that Al Gore wants everyone to switch over to, it's like you need a, you know, some sort of special tactics cleanup team to, when they break because it's got all this mercury in there. I don't know what you would call it. What, what would you call it? Environmental hazard crew. A clean team or whatever. The green yeah, clean team. An, yeah. 
you need an environmental hazard team to come if one of those light bulbs breaks because it fills the room with mercury and all this other crazy stuff that's worse for the environment than an incandescent light bulb ever could have been. Not only that, but those light bulbs are annoying on my eyes. You can't read with them. It's, <laughs> it's, it's totally oxymoronic, but it is a clear indicator of how effective advertising, propaganda, and the formation of public opinion is in our society. Because here's the thing. Everybody wants the environment to be clean. We have these common ground. We want our food to be nutritious and tasty. We want our water to be pure and clean. We want the air we breathe to be free of toxins and, and smog. And the people who are kind of manipulating our society know that we have these common things, these basic needs that we have to have covered in order to continue life on the planet. And so because they've been using these advertising techniques, these, these techniques to get through to our, even our, our emotional subconscious, they're able to appeal to us and basically trick us into buying solutions that aren't actually solutions. So, selling solutions to us that actually exacerbate the problem so that they can offer even more solutions which will continue to exacerbate the problem. And so until we see through, until we question, like, wait a second, I'm not just going to believe that this is the answer. I'm going to seek out other answers, and I'm going to analyze the answer that you're offering and see how valid it actually is instead of just going, yep, that guy's got the answer. I'm going to buy it up. They purposely engineered consumer products over the past 40 years to have excess packaging, to be purposely out of service in six months so that everything – we have created a society of purposeful obsolescence, right? And what we're talking about is the obsolescence of America as a result of producing all this extra garbage and DVD players that only work for six months and you got to throw it away and buy a new one. There's no such thing as getting your TV fixed anymore. There's no such thing as any of these things being held held onto. Every piece of electronics is like, oh, well, you use this, you know, this computer for a couple of years and then we're going to make a new chip. So you got to throw the whole thing away because it won't fit in your motherboard, right? And so if you look at a movie, even a short story like 20 Minutes, the, uh, the Story of Stuff, which is an excellent short film that explains the history of things from the ground all the way through the consumption and, and, and into the garbage pit, right? And you can watch a film like that for free online and, and educate yourself. You know, and once you have these ideas, you can start to empower yourself by making more informed decisions. And we can dispose of our disposable culture, right? Because it's, you know, the, the whole idea of overpopulation and, and having too many people on this planet. Well, Not enough resources. Right. Well, that comes from purposeful choices made by these corporations in order to profit over the last 40 years instead of planning for our futures like any right. responsible adults would do. And everything is, is geared towards their bottom line to make things the cheapest, the quickest, with the least resources, least amount of time, all of the above. Thus, and, uh, and that, and that explains it? why you have slaves putting together Nikes well, and all this other stuff for right, exactly. And explain, and, you know, and it, you have. Well, I was just going to use the example of furniture. You know, a hundred years ago, your your family would pass down a piece of furniture generation after generation. You know, your your mom or grandmother might have their grandmother, great grandmother's dining room set and stuff like this. You know, and now all of this junk comes from IKEA. And, you know, you, you drive through an apartment complex on any given weekend and you'll see every trash bin along the way filled with cheap IKEA furniture. Totally, dude. And w one of the indicators of that is it's like you, you might have furniture that's kept 100 years and now if you move twice, that furniture falls apart. Why right. is that? You paid this, you paid basically the same amount of labor to get to attain that piece of furniture. Why is the one today made for made so, so shoddily? 
oh, maybe it's to do with the shipping. Maybe it's the economy of scale on which the thing was produced. How much? Maybe it has to do with Walmart shelf space and availability of being able to sell your product. Any number of things, it still adds up to you're spending your money on shit and you could be getting something real for it, right? Those are things that are replaceable and you are not replaceable, right? Our children are not replaceable. And so when we think about the bigger picture, even when you think about going into the doctor, right? I mean, those doctors are trained in their medical schools by pharmaceutical reps, right? And then their ongoing education is by pharmaceutical reps. I know because I used to waitress and a lot of the parties that I did were pharmaceutical reps entertaining doctors and educating these doctors. And it's all about the the bottom line and selling you something. And if you go to the doctor and the doctor cures your, you know, gets to the root cause of your uh, illness and cures you, then you're not going to be coming back to those pharmaceutical companies for your fix, right? To reaffirm the advertising? Right. Well, yeah, yeah. You're not going to go back to the doctor to keep on the system, to keep getting the meds, to keep your pharmaceutical sales rep happy, to keep their their, uh, sales manager happy, and to keep the pharmaceutical companies churning false profits out of, you know, and we can't say that all things that the pharmaceutical companies are making, there's clearly... Yeah, we can't make a generalization, though. Yeah, there's clearly benefit to a lot of these things that have been discovered, but... Just not the ones advertised during dinner. When you you block natural remedies and you create a system like the Food and Drug Administration that is specifically designed to only cater to corporations and not even to look at natural remedies or even approve natural remedies, which brings us back to hemp and medical marijuana, it's... Part of the problem there is that the Federal Reserve only studies single chemical compounds that can be patented. So they're not even going to look at if if medical marijuana works or if echinacea and cayenne pepper and all of these miracle plant cures that are out there. They're not going to look at their safety and efficacy because because it doesn't make sense profit in it. So then they just outlaw it. And they say, well, that's not approved by the FDA, so therefore it can't be safe medicine. Because it doesn't make dollars you know, and cents. And it's like, them. well, of course it's not approved by the FDA. Come on, you know, smack you in the head. Are you serious? It, you know, the system is designed only for single chemical com- uh, uh, compounds and corporations. Of course these things aren't approved by the FDA. They never will be unless somebody comes along and patents these damn plants, which they're trying to do. Then they'll, then, you know, once the uh, corporation owns the patent on it, then they'll try and, and, and study it. But, you know, it, there's no profit in studying what people can grow in their backyards and buy at their local grocers or buy from, you know, any herb store. And, you know, what's, what's interesting is I, I used to live in uh, Central Europe and, you know, when you would go to the doctor and you would get a prescription, you would go to the pharmacy and a lot of the pharmacies there, they would give you the option of natural plant remedies or chemical pharmaceutical remedies or both. And it was up to you which one you wanted to take home based on your prescription. They said, well, you know, we can either give you this or that. And some of the pharmacies were one half of the store was herbs and the other half was was pharmaceutical medicines. And they would explain to you the differences and how each of them worked and you could make your decision and they would say you know these are the best from the plant world and from the chemical world and and you know you need to decide for yourself which is going to work best for your situation yeah so i think that just follows the trend where we have to recognize that these trusted authority figures that we put our faith in have basically turned into money collectors right whether it's police officers who spend more time writing tickets than solving crimes doctors who spend more time writing prescriptions than solving illnesses 
uh, lawyers, I don't even have to say how much money they extract <laughs> from just about everybody, uh, and politicians extracting, you know, who, who are really the puppets for the bankers, they're extracting your wealth and feeding it to people who uh, have paid paid them off or paid them to get reelected. Well, and I think that brings us back to the status quo. We're all kind of trying to discern what's going on, and we're describing what we're seeing from our particular angles, right? And I think it's pretty much the same across the board. A lot of people are waking up to the frauds and the schemes and all the things that have been done to them kind of unwittingly, and they're discovering the adverse effects, the side effects of these pharmaceuticals, the side effects of the economy, their 401ks, all these things, and they have questions, right? And so to bring it back, I thought, is there any pattern of history repeating here? Is there is there something that we should have learned in the past that might shed some light on what we're trying to figure out today and it might even give us the keys to unlocking the status quo. And what I found through my research was there's this book from like 2,500 years ago called The Republic by Plato. And it's actually one of the books that was used to template out America because America is a constitutional republic, an idea that comes from the platonic authorship of this document. So just to give you an idea of one of the things that is talked about and is discussed through these different conversations and dialectics. The allegory of the cave. (laughs) In the allegory of the cave, this is where Plato asks us to imagine the following scenario. You've got a group of people that have lived in the deep cave since birth, never seeing daylight at all. Let's say this is the general population, the people who are not even active enough to subscribe to organic consumers or to listen to Media Monarchy or Gnostic Media or Maria or any of these things, right? So... You have these people who have lived in a deep cave. They haven't seen any daylight. They're bound in such a way that they can't look at each other. They can't look to either side, and they can't turn around. They can't look behind them, right? So they can only see straight ahead. So it's like an audience of Americans looking at TV. And behind them is the fire, and the fire is a partial wall, and they cast these shadows across, and people watch the shadows on the wall, kind of like people today watch television shows and take it for reality, right? So because of the fire, because of the the one-sided projection of the TV, let's say, These prisoners watch stories, but because this is all they can ever see, they believe that these things are the most real things in the world. So when you see Congress on C-SPAN, people think that's real, when really what they're looking at is a very scripted act carried out for the benefit of fooling the public. And when they talk to each other about these things that they see on TV, they only think of these things as the shadows, not as the actors and producers and studios that are putting all these plays on in the form of government or politics or economics or global warming scares or whatever. So now he asks us to imagine that one of these characters, one of these prisoners is free from his bonds and able to look and he goes around and he starts to see things as they are. And he eventually gets outside and sees that there are trees and there's a sun and there's water and all these things and that the things on TV are actually copies or models or analogs of these things that are actually real out there for you to experience, right? So he's like, wow, this is great. There's, you know, this isn't as nearly as limiting as being in the cave, this is much more like freedom. This is much more like life. And I discover, or the prisoner discovers, that there's this whole process being carried out to fool the audience. So he gets the bright idea that he wants to go back into the cave and give the people this information, at which point the prisoners kill him. Because the whole point of the story is you better be able to make people laugh, otherwise the truth is going to kill people. So part of this whole process of going through and trying to understand the status quo and and we realize that there are changes that we want made uh, and how to make these things, we have to also learn how to make each other laugh and not to take these things so seriously because I think the process of just taking the step and learning about these things 
is enough to allow us to take a little extra breathing room and know that we're at least doing something, the thing that we can do about this, and that things don't have to be so stressful or anxious every day because we're in a process that's going to deliver us certainty and it's going to deliver us results which are reflective of our desires. So do you see how people watching TV today and tuning into advertisements and whatnot is not a new phenomenon? It's just the new application of recent technology to an old form of how to control a population. Makes a lot of sense. Well, it's sure. interesting. It, t- it ties back into uh, the book Dumbing Us Down, John Taylor Gatto. I didn't finish the seven lessons of the school teacher. Yeah, what are the last two? This, well, the last two. The sixth is provisional self-esteem. It's, it's, he says, the sixth lesson I teach is provisional self-esteem. If you've ever tried to wrestle into line kids whose parents have convinced them to believe they'll be loved in spite of anything, you know how impossible it is to make self-confident spirits conform. Our world wouldn't survive a flood of confident people very long. So it, it's interesting because the seventh one is one cannot hide. The seventh lesson I teach is that one cannot hide. I teach students they are always watched, that each is under constant surveillance by myself and my colleagues. There are no private spaces for children. There is no private time. Class change lasts exactly 300 seconds to keep promiscuous fraternization at low levels. The meaning of constant surveillance and denial of privacy is that no one can be trusted. Surveillance, an ancient imperative espoused by certain influential thinkers, a central prescription set down in the Republic, in the City of God, in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, and in a host of other places, all these childless men who wrote these books discovered the same thing. Children must be closely watched if you want to keep a society under tight central control. Well, and that brings us back to the 1922 book by Walter Lippmann titled Public Opinion, because the first thing he prints in that book is the allegory of the cave. So he must think that the allegory of the cave somehow plays into the formation, strategic formation and control and influence and manipulation of public opinion. So now we're seeing that there's a process that's made to dumb us down. And in the wake of our intellect, they're replacing with beliefs and advertisements and emotional ties to consumer like actions. That is the basis of our economy. So that is a finite linear process that is not sustainable. And what we need to do is take out the, the parts that don't work for sustainability, make it a cyclical process that is sustainable, symbiotic, and basically connects in a coherent loop from beginning to end such that it can continue, right? These are the things. <laughs> well, we can get into the ancient mysteries and the uh, occult nature of organization which created the status quo in a future episode. But right now I wanted to bring up this, just the first couple words of this 1928 book titled Propaganda by Edward Bernays. This is what he wrote for his peers, the corporate monarchs, the corporations that were out there trying to make a buck off the American people. So chapter one is called Organizing Chaos. And Edward Bernays in 1928 had these words to say about propaganda. The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested largely by men we've never heard of. This is a logical result of the way in which our democratic society is organized. 
vast numbers of human beings must cooperate in this manner if they're to live as a smoothly functioning society. Our invisible governors are, in many cases, unaware of the identity of their fellow members in the inner cabinet, which means they don't even realize who each other are, but they're okay with doing it to the rest of us, right? And then it basically goes on to say that we're dominated by a relatively small number of people. They can do this because they understand the mental processes and social patterns of the masses. So they take an understanding of how we work as human beings and they use it against us and they charge corporations for the information of how to subvert the rest of us, right? So these are some of the reasons we wanted to, to check into this and start investigating the status quo because it looks like the status quo was set up to prey upon us. And our reaction to that predator is to give that predator money. So it seems like our economy on the, on the surface is a protection racket. Or, and or extortion. So this is why, like Plato, later in the Republic, he says that they have to get rid of all the poets. And that was, that was kind of confusing to me because I was like, what's so bad about poetry? His first gripe about the poets is that they deal in the least real things. Their wares are images, shadows, reflections. The objects of their art are, as Socrates puts it, far removed from, quote, what is, right? So then I began to understand that back then, to Plato, the poets are equivalent to today's propaganda and ad men. And Hollywood directors like Roland Emmerich, who want to show you this graphically, what? It's a genocide movie about 2012, where everyone on the planet gets whacked, right? All his movies are the same genocide movie made over and over. I think he's destroyed New York five or six times in graphic detail. It puts us more in a position where we're more likely to accept, without critical thinking, fallacious-filled arguments and emotionally-based characterizations of future events. Right? And that is limiting your cognitive awareness. That's limiting your freedom and ability to manifest something different because they're showing it to hundreds of millions of people at once, many of whom are not going to think past that. So they're going to hold that as their highest idea of any of the situations. Right? Most people hold the, the Oliver Stone movie JFK as, well, that's how they think of the whole scenario in their mind because it's the production that had the most money behind it that seems the mo like the most realistic illusion presentation of the thing. Right, So when we get back to it, it's not about what they're showing us on TV or in the movie theaters. It is about how do we apply our intellect and rational thinking as adults to the situation such that we can survive with our humanity intact and no longer being preyed on by people who have used sophism, which is the effective use of rhetoric in a misdirecting or argument for misdirecting purposes. So they're making an effective argument, but they're doing it in such a way that it's directing you away from the truth instead of toward the truth. And they're doing this for purposes of money, not for any other humanitarian reason, even though that's what they'll claim. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a good example and, of that with, with our elected leaders, at least in Canada, was a film called Oh Canada, Our Bought and Sold Out Land, where writer-director Dan Matthews goes and interviews several prime ministers of Canada, several members of parliament, and confronts them with real questions asking about the monetary system. And they give conflicting answers, wrong answers, and it's and by the end of the film, it's plain to see that their whole job is to regulate and misdirect you so that the people above them can continue profiting at your ignorance. So there's a name to what we're missing. There's the situation that we could have had, and then there's the name for what we're missing. The situation we could have had is we could have had an education in something called the Great Conversation, which is a summation of all the great writers of Western culture because they all read each other's work in a chronological order to a greater extent. And this allowed them to build from the ideas of Homer and Plato and Aristotle all the way up through people like Dante and Machiavelli, 
these people were familiar with each other's work when it comes later. You see, or how, what's the easiest way to say that? Well, they're building it in succession. It's like they, they, the foundation's been laid out with Plato and Aristotle and Socrates' work, and they keep building upon the foundation of each other's work. Right. So a contemporary writer would read all of these other books from its pre- from its predecessors, who were all talking basically about the same thing, which is why it's called the Great Conversation. It's the you know what what is this experience that we're all sharing? What is its meaning? What is truth? What is you know what is misdirection? What are these things? And then they've basically taken these ideas for the past twenty five hundred years and used them effectively without people really getting the gist of it. Aristotle's book on rhetoric is the source in every marketing and advertising person's spiel. It's the effective use of persuasive speech to get you to do what they want you to do. It's, it's about using persuasive speech to manipulate other people. This is the art of sales. This is why basically no university has a degree in sales. Sales is such an essential part of all these corporations, and yet they don't give out a degree in sales. Don't you find that unusual? They do not want to allow, A, people to have the power of persuasive speech, or B, consumers to be aware of the facets of persuasive speech because that would make you immune to their advertisements, which, if I recall, like 40 minutes ago, that's what we were looking for. Now that you recognize that some of these things are, are disempowering you, how do you break free of their systems of control? We did a little bit of learning in between, and now we're finding, hey, this is how you get free of their control, right? You start to educate yourself, and then you learn Oh, advertisements are based around this. Okay, so when I see an advertisement, as long as I don't feel like I'm at a loss, it's not being effective, right? Mm-hmm. Right. It's like an inoculation of information. If I watch the if I watch the commercial and I'm happy with what I have, that commercial just failed, and their use of persuasive speech against me has been nullified. It's like a force field that blocks you from the new world order, or however you want to characterize globalism these days. Any disempowering actions on behalf of international publicly traded corporations that are against the average human being and not in any human interest. So what's if persuasive speech fails, what's the other variable they use against us to make us do things we wouldn't normally want to do? Money. War. Well, yeah, mo- money. Well, uh, war is about pride, right? Because if we all preached cowardice, there would be no war. It's because it's so glorified. People think there's glory in going to another country and killing people they don't know. But, right, know. and they're using, but you know, and then and they're using these same false arguments to present that story to get people to think it's all glorious to go fight and kill people in another country. Absolutely, and what's one of the first things they do when you join the military is they do their absolute best to drum out any sense of critical thinking whatsoever. And they they homogenize everyone. Yeah. Well, and the other way that countries go to war is a somebody controls your diplomatic crew, and that controls whether or not physically the country goes to war. And then you have to have the social backing by the a majority, let's say, of the population who have to be fooled by some facet of media or chain of advertising or combination of both, where the audience is fooled into dehumanizing who they perceive now as the enemy, instead of those are people on the other side of the world living their lives and being screwed with by some somebody's foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And they learned that like we are corporate yeah. foreign policy. So we're all in the same boat, right? We have more in common with the average person in Iraq than we do with the multi-billionaire in any given company out here. And that's what they don't want us to figure out. Well, you know, it's just like when, uh, you know, when you live in these other countries. I lived in, in Yugoslavia when we were at war with Yugoslavia. And that was the whole thing is they didn't want us to know that the Yugoslavians were just like us. They wake up at 6.30 or 7 a.m., they brush their teeth, they take their shower, they get their kids ready for school, they go to work, they come back, farmers farm, and they're just like us. And that's what they don't want us to realize. And and see, that's the thing, is if 
all of us were left alone without these outside influences, then we would all be thriving in peace and harmony without all these wars. And, you know, you would occasionally get bands of raiders and things like that, but you wouldn't have, you know, (laughs) you wouldn't have like this whole global system that's designed to put everybody in a box. I think one of those outside influences is that very box. It's the box where we're taught through an education system to think we know instead of learning a process of taking in information, chewing it up, deciding what's fact, what's fiction, and then coming to... what's outside the box. So I acquired uh, some used books. Let's call them some used books because that sounds boring, right? Uh, It's a 54-volume set that's printed in like 1953 and 1954 by Encyclopedia Britannica that was purchased by 500 of the most elite companies and families in this country and was produced exclusively for them. And I thought, well, it's really curious. Like, why don't they want regular people to have this? You know, why would they produce it just for these families and whatnot? What kind of information is in there? Because I thought if there are people out there running corporations and creating these corporations as proxies so that these boards of directors aren't responsible for their actions, that's kind of sociopathic. And those people have some sort of information set that's beyond what we were taught then it would probably benefit us to get our hands on that and figure out what they know. So I found my answer on page 74 of the first volume. It has a letter to the reader, and the gentleman who put this set of books together is a famous educator from the University of Chicago named Robert Maynard Hutchins. His name will come up again later. It's uh, somewhat nefarious, but here's his letter to the reader. Before it gets nefarious, here's, here's the letter to the reader. Here's what we're missing out on, right? He says this. I imagine you reading this far in the set of books for the purpose of discovering whether you should read further. And I was like, wow, he's reading my mind because I'm trying to decide whether or not I want to keep reading. I will assume that you've been persuaded of the necessity and the possibility of reading these books in order to get a liberal education. The editors are not interested in the general propositions about the desirability of reading the books. They want them read. They did not produce them as furniture for some public or private libraries. We say that these books contain a liberal education and that everyone ought to try to get one. You say that you've either had one or that you're not bright enough to get one or that you do not need one. And then he says this, and this kind of caught my attention. It says, you cannot have had one. And I was like, well, how can't anyone have had one? That's interesting. And he says, if you're an American under the age of 90, and this is in 1953, you have acquired in the educational system only the faintest glimmerings of the beginning of a liberal education. And then he says, ask yourself what great books you read while you were in school, college, or university. Ask yourself whether you and your teachers saw these books as a great conversation among the finest minds of Western history, and whether you obtained an understanding of the tradition, or status quo, in which you live. I was like, wow. And then he says, ask yourself whether you've mastered the liberal arts. And he says, I'm willing to wager that if you've read any great books at all, you've read very few that you read one without reference to the others in separate courses, and for that part, you mostly read only excerpts from them. And he says, as for me, I was educated in two very liberal colleges, apart from Shakespeare that was scattered throughout my education. I read one of the books in this set, Goethe's Faust, and part of another, a few dialogues of Plato, as part of my formal education. He goes on to say that the reason that they don't give the liberal education to everybody is because they only want certain people to use it, and those certain people who use it are supposed to use it to make money in the way that the system in status quo is already set up. So if you're interested in change, if you're interested in cracking up some of this tradition and, and, and bringing some new stuff in that might better serve people of today, because I don't think it's fair to be ruled by the ideas set down by people who are no longer here if 
those ideas are in conflict with our very existence, it seems rational to re-examine some of these things. And when you look into the fact that the liberal education has been suppressed and the knowledge of this great conversation has been taken away from the masses, and then you start to look into the changes in the American education system over, let's say, like well, the past 200 years, because there used to be a, a little red schoolhouse and there was one person and he or she would teach the students and some of the students called upperclassmen would help the younger students, right? And so what they were teaching back then was something that eloquently called the lost tools of learning, as Dorothy Sayers kind of gave it this name in 1947 when she was presenting a speech at Oxford. So here at Oxford was this woman who was a teacher, a new teacher, noticing what's going on with the education system. And she's reaching out to other scholars at Oxford and saying, look, can't you see this problem? And she didn't know at that time that the problem was purposely put there so that only certain people would have the information to be in control. Now, if I might share just a couple words, because I think people could relate to it. Has it ever struck you as odd or unfortunate that today, when the proportion of literacy throughout Western Europe is higher than it's ever been, people should have become susceptible to the influence of advertisement and mass propaganda to an extent hitherto unheard of and unimagined? Do you put this down to the mere mechanical fact that the press and radio and so on have made propaganda much easier to distribute over a wide area? Or do you sometimes have the uneasy suspicion that the product of the modern educational methods is less good than he or she might be at disentangling the fact from fiction and proven from the plausible? Have you ever, in listening to debate among adult and presumably responsible people, been fretted by the extraordinary inability of the average debater to speak to the question or to meet and refute the arguments of the speakers on the other side? Have you ever pondered upon the extremely high incidence of irrelevant matter which crops up at committee meetings and upon the great rarity of persons capable of acting as chairman of committees? And when you think of this and you think that most of our public affairs are settled by debates and committees, have you ever felt a certain sinking of the heart? Have you ever followed a discussion in the newspapers or elsewhere and noticed how frequently writers fail to define the terms they use or... How often, if one man does define his terms, will another assume in his reply that he was using the terms in precisely the opposite sense to that which has already been defined, right? So she goes on to note all these things, and basically what she gets down to is that there is the classical lost tools of learning, as she calls it, the systems in which for 6,000 years people were taught to discern fact from fiction, the process of learning how to do things, right? something that Jan introduced to us as the trivium and quadrivium because he was responsible for delivering these lost tools back to us. And she says on this next page, toward the closing, which would summarize the whole thought, but I'm not here to consider the feelings of the academic bodies. So she's not, she doesn't care about the schools. I'm only concerned with the proper training of the mind to encounter and deal with the formidable mass of undigested problems presented to it by the modern world. For the tools of learning are the same in any and every subject, and the person who knows how to use them will, at any age, get the mastery of a new subject in half the time and with quarter the effort expended by the person who has not the tools at his or her command. To learn six subjects without remembering how they were learnt does nothing to ease the approach to a seventh. To have learnt and remembered the art of learning makes every approach to every subject an open door. So through all these factors, whether it be education, economics, our food, our water, our media system, even this whole suppression of consciousness, it's, it's really 
ultimately about control and denying us the uniting commonality of the human experience by exploiting and promoting these artificial differences. Well, let's simplify that. Every issue you have out there, whether it's politics, the economy, the environment, any of these things, these are like leaves on a tree. They're all symptoms. And the root cause that's producing these symptoms is a lack of critical thinking by the mass audience of people who consume media without critical thinking. So that's that's or consume you know, information. Yeah. Right. Anyone who's consuming information and not practicing the trivium and quadrivium as a form of critical thinking is at the beck and will of whatever the advertisers want them to do. They are literally on remote control. However, by reintroducing these lost tools of learning, the trivium and quadrivium, the classical ways of discovery and gaining answers and certainty and communicating those things, by putting those back, it resolves the problem. So I think that by talking about these things and continuing on in the next episode by explaining exactly what the trivium is, what the quadrivium is, why it matters to you, why even though that sounds like stuff that might be hard to learn or vague or nebulous or whatever, look at it as an exciting journey and an exploration that you're going to embark on that's going to empower you for the rest of your life, every day for the rest of your life, in everything that you encounter because it's going to allow you to distill fact from fiction, reality from illusion. Once you can discern those characteristics of your reality, you can see more clearly. And that's what it's all about. It's about bringing meaning and clarity to your life because that's ultimately what happiness is made up of. Having the right information at the right time and putting it into action and cooperating and communicating with other people to do likewise. Because when you have the knowledge and you don't feel helpless, it's actually a really good feeling. You know, it's the difference between relying on a mechanic to fix your car or having the tools and the knowledge of knowing how to fix your car yourself, right? One puts you at the mercy of someone else, and the other one, the only limitation is what you're willing to learn. Well, not necessarily, because you don't necessarily have to learn how to fix the car yourself, but what it will even teach you is when you approach the mechanic, if the mechanic lies to you, and you have a bad feeling, you won't walk away thinking, well, I, you know, I don't like this mechanic. I, he gives me a funny feeling. You'll have the tools to specifically identify what happened and why you don't trust him and why you are leaving. And it gives you more independence instead of making you more dependent on the so-called authority. So going forward, I mean, if we're going to continue to do this and share this information with people, then we should just, you know, the goal of what we're doing to make it known is a, is a form of structured learning through communication that leads to understanding and, and some more meaning in life. And the ground rules are it's a fear-free environment where we respect each other and our goal is to sharpen each other through debate and conversation, not to break each other down and try to attack people. And you can offer some homework at the end, and the homework can be optional. At the end of the day, it's all whatever speed people want to go at. If you're serious about life and we're offering you the keys, then you do what you want with the keys. You can listen to it. You can check it out. You can not. It's up to you. Well, it's all about having a choice. And when you have access to the information, then you have true choice. Because to say that you have choice without having access to information is absurd. Because choice is predicated on information. And so the information is there and people can do with it what they will. But the point is that they have access to it. Well, and I think once you give people access to it, then they can start to spread it through their social networks and whatnot. Because what we're trying to do is we're seeking to cross-pollinate these ideas and cross-pollinate the audiences of many podcasts and, and social networks and the like. So the idea is to get everyone in the position where they have a buddy system, where they have someone else they can bounce ideas off of and they have study groups forming and, and other ways, book clubs, however you want to do it. Get together with your friends, start talking about these things in an intellectual manner 
Next episode, we'll teach you how to use the critical thinking aspect, so that's kind of necessary if you're going to make any progress. But the point is now, change is equal to action. So if there's no action, there's no change going on. And so um, my recommendation would be cancel expenses that are in conflict with your goals. Don't fund your opposition. That's good advice. What kind of uh, what kind, what kind of homework? homework? Uh, we got homework here. Homework would be Gnostic Media Podcast 49 and 50. Then if you're really aggressive at learning, then you want to sign up for Tragedy and Hope. But gnosticmedia.podomatic.com and we're going to put up all the notes and the links That's and everything with this podcast. G-N-O-S-T-I-C media.com. Jan, since you are the host of Gnostic Media, why don't you tell everyone what they can look forward to in those episodes? Well, 49 is the trivium and 50 is the quadrivium and basically what they can expect is a discussion of how to use their own minds. I thought it was the most interesting podcast you've done. That's why I signed it for homework. So if you want to come back next episode and you want to be ahead of the game and understand what's going on before we even talk about it, then do your homework. Do you guys have any closing words for each other, for your audience, people chilling? I was just going to say that, you know, a lot of people out there are starving for truth and they might be choking on a little dogma. And, you know, if they're really looking for some healthy, nutritious information, then I think we've planted a lot of seeds for people to kind of go and investigate. And it's, it's really about empowering yourself. Look for the answers within. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing this first episode of the Peace Revolution. We hope you'll join us for the next episode where we'll be talking about the lost tools of learning. We'll be delivering these lost tools back to you and you'll remember the experience for the rest of your life because the skills and the history we're sharing will be something you use every day as you continue on this mutual journey of exploration through life and learning how to grow in the right direction. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and share it with everyone you know. At peacerevolution.org, you'll find the tools to embed, email, download, and subscribe to all of our episodes. Thanks again to tragedyandhope.com for making this podcast advertisement-free. And if you're looking for the others who are likewise realizing what you're realizing, Tragedy and Hope offers a fear-free zone of mutual respect where individual explorations are shared to empower subscribers with cooperative understanding. And that's where we're at. Everyone who participates in this podcast also participates in Tragedy and Hope. Subscribe to a higher awareness and take care of each other out there. Thanks for tuning in and not dropping out. Peace. <laughs>